This really is the lifeblood of their industry and they're just so thrilled. A site that hasn't been seen in B.C. in more than two years. What the return of cruise ships in Canada looks like. We've just been constantly being kicked to the ground. A persisting problem, the impact of the latest vandalism in Vancouver's Chinatown and what the police and province are promising. Plus, we were able to match and even beat Energy East. And now they're targeting Trans Mountain. Indigenous leaders from across B.C. travel to Vancouver to rally. You're watching Global B.C. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We begin with breaking news. Homicide investigators say a man who was shot at a home in South Surrey this week has now died of his injuries. Officers responded to reports of gunfire early Wednesday morning at a residence on 24th Avenue and 152 A Street. 33-year-old David Goldstein was found at the scene with critical injuries and was rushed to hospital. The integrated homicide investigation team is now identifying him to try to further the investigation and identify any potential witnesses. They say the attack was not random and not part of the ongoing Lower Mainland gang conflict. If you have any information about this case, you're asked to call police or Crime Stoppers. And more breaking news tonight in Maple Ridge, where a man is dead after what appears to be a shooting. It happened late this afternoon in the parking lot of Olympian's Gym at 226th Street and Lougheed Highway. Emergency crews tried to revive the victim before a tarp was placed over his body. Investigators have set up a tent and are gathering evidence on scene. Global News has reached out to the Integrated Homicide Investigation Team for more details. BC's cruise industry is finally back in business after a three-year shutdown due to the pandemic. This morning, the first cruise ship to dock on the West Coast this season finally arrived in Victoria. But as Kamil Kermali reports, the season had already been delayed days earlier following a suspected COVID-19 outbreak on board another vessel. This has been a long time coming. It's a big deal. A wave of tourists flowing into Victoria. First cruise of my life, first time to Canada. Flooding into local shops and restaurants. This really is the lifeblood of their industry. 1,200 passengers arriving to the province's capital on the Holland America's Koningsdam. It's the first cruise ship to arrive in Canada since the COVID-19 pandemic began. 905 days since we last saw a cruise ship here. Yeah, we are counting. Like many, passengers Brenda and Dale weren't sure if their cruise ship vacation was even going to go ahead. We booked this back in the fall, and of course, COVID hasn't stood still. It comes, it goes, it's a concern, it's less of a concern. So we had our ups and downs wondering. The Koningsdam was originally supposed to be the second ship to arrive here. The Caribbean Princess was initially scheduled to arrive this past Wednesday, but was halted in its journey. The cruise line claimed it was due to maintenance issues, but passengers say it was caused by a wave of COVID cases. As for the Koningsdam, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control detected positive cases last week, even though the ship is only about half full. But it was downgraded to zero cases by the time it docked in Victoria. There's layers and layers of protection so that the communities we're visiting can can feel confident that we've taken all the precautions. 
an upgraded medical center on board. Staff have to wear masks, hand sanitizers everywhere. Passengers need to be double vaccinated before boarding. They say it's been smooth sailing so far. I feel it was extremely safe that um, all the preparations that went on constantly on the ship for cleanliness, for uh, safety. This line ends in Vancouver, the first of more than 350 cruise ships to visit Victoria from now until early November. Kamal Karamali, Global News. One day after we reported that the province is promising to work with the city of Vancouver to help combat the graffiti vandalism that's plaguing Chinatown, police are investigating another attack on the historic community. The Guardian Lions at Millennium Gate, the entrance to Chinatown, were defaced overnight with vandals coloring their eyes in green and orange. Dr. Sun Yat-sen Classical Chinese Garden was also targeted. Someone broke in and wrote on the walls of the Heritage Cultural Institution. B.C. Attorney General David Eby says the state of Chinatown is unacceptable and he's willing to work with local government on potential solutions, while Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth says they're looking at hate messaging legislation. The community is wondering if this is Asian hate or just blatant vandalism. Chinatown has been targeted for quite some time. It's especially gotten bad since the pandemic, I would say. And just, I mean, I think it's just our culture that we always keep our head down. We don't complain. You know, we don't make a stink. And, and we've just been constantly being kicked to the ground. So, you know, I'm really happy to see some support coming from other levels of government to kind of help what's going on down here. Sometimes people ask if the crime and the vandalizing that happens in Chinatown is racially motivated. It's racially motivated even when it doesn't seem racially motivated because the city has turned a blind eye and ignored it, knowing specifically that this is Chinatown, this is Vancouver's Chinatown, that there are so many seniors in this neighborhood, there's so many people who have grown up here and they're watching their community uh, go into erosion. And just east of Chinatown, citizens are taking back Vancouver's Hastings Sunrise neighborhood with grassroots cleanups that have ramped up during the pandemic. As Kristen Robinson reports, the volunteers funded by the city and local BIA take to the streets up to three times a week to get rid of litter and unwanted graffiti. Almost every weekend they assemble, crack open the paint and get to work. It's a personal thing where, to me, it's really important that we all take care of our community. Sampson Say grew up in Hastings Sunrise. He's been volunteering with the local community policing center since 2012, leading the Saturday graffiti cleanups that have so far removed some 9,000 tags. It's actually a good feeling to be able to cover it all up, right, and then restore it. It's super important because we've gotten rocked with um, graffiti, especially over COVID. It's been, you know, the community is, you know, especially with the businesses, and it costs a lot in property damage. Applying the broken windows theory for crime and disorder, Carmen McLeod's team of volunteers is reclaiming the neighborhood. If we let the trash and tags build up and it just invites more. It's heartbreaking to see um, Chinese business owners uh, having to deal with this. It's not up to them to solve this. Murals can also deter tagging, but in Chinatown, this left the city's tight-knit community of graffiti artists unimpressed. The Vancouver Mural Festival's Adrian Sinclair says, generally speaking, you don't go over other people's work. There's a very high degree of respect 
for uh, especially cultural murals. In general, it works, but when it doesn't, it's troubling. And graffiti really is much more in the art form and its community has community codes and guidelines, whereas vandalism is, is sort of just damaging other artwork. Most of the art here is untouched, he says, and the festival's first mural of the season will be a collaboration with the Chinatown BIA and a local business. People need to step in, leaders need to step in and to help support and listen to what Chinatown needs. We can all make a difference um, just by doing a little bit. Even if their hard work creates a fresh canvas, it's worth it, says Say. Even if they do spray it over it again, right, it's actively showing that there is someone who is uh, looking to take care of all of this. It always gets painted over, it always gets sprayed over again, but we're always going to be here to keep painting over it again. Kristen Robinson, Global News. Langara College in Vancouver is warning staff and students about two incidents of sexual exposure on its campus. College administration sent out an email to students and employees saying campus community members were approached recently by someone who, quote, engaged in inappropriate behavior. The college says it does not believe this individual is connected to the school. The email says the college is cooperating with the Vancouver Police Department on its investigation and that they've increased the frequency of campus safety patrols. A few weeks ago on March 27th at around 9.30 in the morning, uh, a male suspect walked into the security office at Langara College. Um, he then proceeded to ask the female security guard um, to go to the washroom with her when she declined. Um, he then um, exposed his genitals to her. He then uh, fled before police um, arrived on scene. So we are um, still investigating. We are working with uh, Langara College to investigate this. The province's police watchdog says a Port Moody officer may have committed an offence while making an arrest last September. Port Moody police officers went to a home on April Road on September 15th to arrest a man on outstanding warrants. The man exited the building from a third-story balcony, fell to a second-story roof before landing on the ground. He was seriously injured, although he fled on foot before being taken into custody. Now, the Independent Investigations Office believes there are reasonable grounds to believe an officer may have committed an offence in relation to the entry of the residence and the arrest. It's now up to the B.C. Prosecution Service to decide whether to lay charges or not. Burnaby RCMP say they've been cracking down on illegal ride-hailing operations in that city. Mounties teaming up with passenger transportation officers on Friday to catch four drivers allegedly using illegal apps. Police say one of the motorists even drove onto the sidewalk to try to evade officers. The four drivers were slapped with 18 tickets in total. Last December, the federal and provincial governments pledged $5 billion for flood recovery across B.C. Months later, devastated communities like Merritt are still waiting for confirmation the funding is even coming. Our report tonight is from CFJC News. On November 14th, floodwaters breached the banks of the Coldwater River, forcing the community to evacuate. What followed in the weeks to come were promises from provincial and federal governments to help Merritt rebuild even just three weeks ago when Minister Bill Blair visited town. Now nearly five months since the floods and four months since the provincial and federal governments promised $5 billion in flood relief, the city of Merritt is still waiting for assurance those funds are coming. But I won't let myself believe that we have been forgotten. And I will continue to remind ministers that we are still here and we are still waiting. So this is the problem with this government. 
They promise hand on heart when, when, uh, when there's a pressing need, and then they defer and defer and defer. While the list of projects awaiting recovery funding and merit is a mile long, one issue remains head and shoulders above the rest. Our biggest concern is housing. We are looking at this 3D printing um, project, hopefully to get fast housing up so that people at least have a place to call home. Uh, rather than a hotel room or somebody's couch. We recognize that there are a lot of people that are still in really dire straits right now as we're, we're working to put together these broader projects. And uh, I never want to lose sight of that human element. None of us do. Um, it's what motivates us to uh, keep our foot on the gas. If the city were to receive funding tomorrow, Smith says projects would be underway in short order. But as the waiting game continues, the city is working to ensure the river is reinforced and safe from future storms. When you look at how much that bank was being undercut, and then again, you're bringing it back to make sure that we're gonna be in a good position, not only for coming into to Freshette for this year, but for whatever the ultimate design or redesign of the, uh, the Middlesbrough Bridge is gonna end up like. The work on the river is promising, but without Merritt residents back home, Mayor Brown's work continues with a trip Monday to appear before the Joint Committee on Flood Response. Their stories are heartbreaking. I can't do anything for them. I can hear their stories and, and my heart breaks along with them. But it's tragic. Uh, they're our refugees. In Merritt, Michael Reeve, CFJC News. To some good news now for search and rescue crews in the central Caribou. Their stolen truck has been recovered. It was stolen last Saturday from the team's headquarters in Williams Lake and recovered yesterday. The truck is a crucial piece of life-saving equipment in the Caribou. It was stocked with equipment to extricate people from vehicles in the case of a crash. Police are now going through it and looking for clues. This truck has taken years and years of unpaid professional volunteer hours to get the truck to what it is years of writing grants and budgeting and managing uh, the finances of our organization so that we could not only purchase that truck but also purchase the items that are on it uh, that truck in itself responded to 163 callouts last year Still ahead, they say they're together against Trans Mountain, a rally in Vancouver reaching for a new direction on Indigenous rights and reconciliation. And how these so-called language warriors are protecting a key part of their culture. First few months of 2020, protests over the Trans Mountain pipeline were a near daily occurrence in parts of BC. But then the pandemic hit, shutting down nearly every activity in the world. But now, with the slow reopening up of society, activists are relaunching their campaign, holding a major rally in downtown Vancouver today, drawing Indigenous leaders opposed to the project from across the country. Paul Johnson has more. Saturday's rally at the Vancouver Art Gallery confirmed that if you thought the movement to stop the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion project had faded away, you'd be mistaken. I'm here simply because I want to acknowledge that everything that I've learned about the crisis we face has come to me from the Indigenous people. While COVID, Ukraine, trucker convoys may have eclipsed the pipeline issue for some time. The hundreds who gathered Saturday show the movement is alive and well and infused with the spirit of Indigenous rights and reconciliation. 
and possibly headed in new directions. We always try to make our decisions so that uh, the benefits that we enjoy today, that the generations coming will enjoy the same and better. Serge Otsi Simon is a former Grand Chief of the Mohawk Council. He played a role stopping the Energy East pipeline from crossing Mohawk territory and thinks a rebooted protest movement here could have the same results. By combining our powers, we were able to match and even beat Energy East. And now we're aiming at Trans Mountain. But it's still a daunting challenge. Throughout the pandemic, work continued on the project. And in addition to all of the new steel in the ground, the pipeline is still owned by the federal government putting taxpayers and Prime Minister Trudeau in the position of having serious skin in the game. We want to make investors aware of, of how this will be a stranded asset. Tooth First Nation member Reuben George says as the project's budget balloons and the consequences of fossil fuel burning come into ever sharper focus. His strategy will be to attack the business case for the pipeline. We're going to educate people. That's what we're going to do. We're going to do, we're planning a tour to the Alberta tar sands, stopping at key cities along the way, and continue to educate people. Trans Mountain didn't respond to our request for comment in time for this report. In Vancouver, Paul Johnson, Global News. Central Okanagan MLAs, notably from the B.C. Liberals, are calling for another provincial riding to be added to Kelowna before the next election, saying as the city continues to grow at a rapid rate, another MLA will be needed. Darian Matassa-Fung reports. Local MLAs in the Central Okanagan say another provincial riding needs to be added to the Kelowna area. The population over the last few years has, uh, has boomed and is projected to continue to boom at uh, roughly 3% a year. So uh, with that uh, population growth, uh, we, uh, we anticipate that the uh, Boundary Commission will look favorably on the, on the ask, and uh, the question will be, uh, where does it go? The three local MLAs, Norm Letnick, Ben Stewart, and Renee Merrifield, have all posted on their social media pages in favor of the new proposed boundaries that will add a fourth riding to the area. Currently, the ridings include Kelowna Mission, Kelowna West, and Kelowna Lake Country. The proposal would see downtown Kelowna become its own riding with the other three slightly altered. Kelowna West, which currently includes part of downtown Kelowna, would encompass West Kelowna to Fintree. Kelowna North would stretch far down Highway 33 and would include Lake Country. Kelowna Central, the proposed new riding, would include downtown Kelowna and the Glenmore area, and Kelowna South would include almost everything south of Harvey Avenue and Highway 33, including Big White. It'll always be the uh, decision at the end of the day of government. Uh, the Boundary Commission will make its report as a recommendation to government, and then the government will have to make that final decision. The report is expected to be published in the fall of 2022. Kelowna's Chamber of Commerce also supports the idea of adding a fourth riding to Kelowna. Executive Director Dan Rogers also cites the rapidly growing population and developments within the city as arguments for the new riding. Darian Matassafan, Global News, Kelowna. There are fewer than 40 elders who can still speak the traditional Silk language, but the community is hoping to change that. In a step towards language revitalization, it has started a year-long intensive course for its members. This work that we do 
we're able to do it because we have recordings, because we have the recordings that Sam Tietze, with all of her courageous spirit, she made together with Chris Parkin and Leray Wiley and the Sailor School of Spokane. And we're continuing in that vein while we still have our precious few remaining elders with us. And we know there's, there's fewer than two dozen Seven students who have studied the language intently for 550 hours are now graduating. They can now share the language with their children, families, and their community. As I reflect on our past year, I'm standing amongst some of the best people I've met. We are the language warriors. We are standing better than before. The graduates presented with a certificate and a drum to celebrate their hard work. They're encouraged to sign up for another course and continue practicing towards fluency. For anyone interested in learning the language, registration is now open for the next intake. And still ahead on the news hour, bracing for bombardment, where Ukraine is preparing to protect now as Canada and other Western nations pledge billions to help. I literally feel like I'm paying a piece of my soul every time I, I tell a story. And later, hear about the recent Métis, Inuit and First Nations papal visit from a special standpoint. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky says his country is ready to take on Russian forces amassing in the east. But in order to win, he needs greater support from the international community. His comments come as Western nations pledge billions of dollars in further support for Ukraine during a fundraising event co-hosted by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Global's Karen Lieberman reports. Urgent calls for people in eastern Ukraine to flee immediately as Russia ramps up its shelling just a day after a missile strike on a packed train station. Survivors search through the debris where more than 50 were killed, scores more seriously injured. But there is little time to spare and even less time to grieve. Ten humanitarian corridors have been agreed upon to evacuate people from besieged southern cities. And donors from around the world are heeding the desperate calls to help the more than 4 million people who have fled the war, with a combined 9.1 billion euros. My friends, as a humanitarian crisis deepens and needs continue to grow, our collective response must keep pace. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau co-hosted the Stand Up for Ukraine pledging event and announced an additional $100 million in humanitarian support, plus a series of measures to help Ukrainians coming to Canada. New income supports for Ukrainians for up to six weeks for those who need it after they arrive to get them started here in Canada on the right foot and ensure that they have access to the basic necessities. We're also going to provide temporary hotel accommodations for up to two weeks. Ukraine's president, meantime, is pleading for help. Just as we are defending ourselves against the greatest tyranny of all, so the other people of the world should bravely resist this tyranny. Karen Lieberman, Global News. 
UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson met in Kyiv with the Ukrainian president. Johnson's visit was not announced in advance. He is the latest Western leader to travel to the Ukrainian capital for talks with their president. It comes a day after the UK announced 100 million pounds of weapons for Ukraine after bombing the train station in Kramatorsk. He says the UK will send additional military equipment to Ukraine, including 800 anti-tank and anti-craft missiles. And the Ukrainian president says he's providing more evidence he says proves Russia has committed war crimes. He makes those claims in an interview with 60 Minutes set to air tomorrow. What evidence is there of war crimes across Ukraine? The Ukrainian security service has intercepted communications, he told us. There are Russian soldiers talking to their parents about what they stole and who they abducted. There are recordings of Russian prisoners of war who admitted to killing people. There are pilots in prison who had maps with civilian targets to bomb. There are also investigations being conducted based on the remains of the dead. Should Vladimir Putin be prosecuted for war crimes? Look, I, I think everyone who made a decision, who issued an order, who fulfilled an order, everyone who is relevant to this, I believe they are guilty. Do you hold Putin responsible? I do believe he's one of them. You can watch the full interview tomorrow right after the news hour here on Global. Officials in Shanghai, China's largest city, will soon lift lockdown measures in the community imposed since March 28th. Shortages of food and necessities led to many complaints from residents. New measures classified Shanghai into precautionary controlled and lockdown areas. This has been one of the worst outbreaks in the country since the pandemic began. The latest round of testing shows nearly 23,000 positive cases, and most are asymptomatic. We are going to take a short break, and coming up, it is taking a toll. But these hockey bruises, blisters, and broken bones are for a good cause. We'll explain next. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. A rite of spring this weekend at Vancouver's Van Dusen Botanical Garden. It's like Vancouver's coming out party. Everybody is here. Thousands of people filling the lawns at the Van Dusen Garden. Sakura Day is taking place today and tomorrow. It's one of the city's largest celebrations of traditional and modern Japanese culture, including a Japanese tea ceremony, martial arts demonstrations, food stalls and trucks, artists and craftspeople, and of course, the most impressive display of all, the cherry blossoms, which are in full bloom this weekend. Oh, no complaints. Sunshine. I wish I'd brought my sunglasses. No uh, feedback, photos. Everybody's taking photos and just having so much fun. It's a very, very special celebration. 
Well, that's lovely to see as we bring in meteorologist Yvonne Shell for a first look at the forecast. And Yvonne, we saw sunshine shining there, but snow in the Okanagan in an earlier story. Quite yeah, a mixed bag. Well, mixed bag, depending <laughs> on where you are. Yeah. Hail, we were tracking some thunderstorms, and it is going to continue to be unsettled, especially for the southern interior as we look ahead towards tomorrow to round off the weekend. I'll have more coming up in just a moment. Good evening, everyone, and welcome back, Nithu. It's very nice to see you. Happy back in studio from Rome. All right, temperatures are currently sitting at 8 degrees. We've had breezy conditions through the day today, even gusts over 40 kilometers per hour. Currently with a southerly wind, we're sitting at 19 kilometers per hour. The early morning hours, just over 40 in the afternoon, early for Abbotsford today, even getting up to 44 kilometers per hour. We're currently sitting out of the harbor, though, 26. That's a sustained wind, and we've got a gust just over 40 in areas into the Fraser Valley with gusts just over 30 kilometers per hour. Still, still breezy, especially as we get in overnight tonight. Winds along the south coast will be at 30 and we'll continue to see it through the day. A drop in temperatures. These are some of the daytime highs with Williams Lake just up to minus three. Trail at four and areas near Victoria today just getting up to two degrees. Now for Metro Vancouver overnight tonight, it is going to be on the cool side. So bundle up for the early morning hours for Sunday. Temperatures will be sitting at two degrees. It looks like we'll have a fair bit of sunshine, but I've left in just a 30% chance of an isolated shower through the day for tomorrow. Highs just getting up to nine degrees average for this time of the year sits at 13. A look ahead for the morning hours. Now it'll be cold enough, especially along the south coast. Areas inland across the island could even see a few wet flurries in the mix. It'll dissipate, but we've got that instability, especially for the southern interior and southeastern corners of the province. The afternoon will be looking at the risk of thunderstorms as we get in through the afternoon and early evening with the bright spot for our Monday. Now the northern half of the province for tomorrow breaks on the way, especially towards the afternoon. Even terrace could see a few flurries for the morning hours. It'll be similar across the central interior then breaks by the afternoon. Southern half of the province, it's higher elevations if you're traveling along the mountain passes. Two and up to four centimeters possible, likely just seeing some flurries in the mix. Areas into the valley, we'll see those flurries for the morning hours changing over to a chance of showers. Afternoon and leading in towards the early evening, that's where we'll look at the risk of thunderstorms. So lots of instability once again. And most areas along the south coast is where we are seeing a slight chance for an isolated shower. Still breezy at times. Tomorrow winds up to 30 kilometers per hour. A bright spot will be on our Monday. That looks to be the nicest out of the bunch. Still a few days out. We could see that change and the chance for some showers returning for our Tuesday onwards. Neithu? Start and end with a mixed bag. There you we bet. go. <laughs> Thanks very much, Yvonne. Well, a hockey marathon for kids in Calgary is entering the home stretch this weekend, but more than 180 hours of hockey is taking its toll on the players' bodies. In order to break the world record for longest hockey game, yikes, the group isn't allowed to add any new players to the roster. Instead, they're playing four hours on, four hours off, with some athletes playing as much as eight hours to relieve those with more serious injuries. Wow. The players say it's for a good cause, and they have no regrets. My skates are size nine, and I have now literally grown two sizes and trying to wedge them in there. And to stand there for a four-hour shift is just excruciating. I think I win the award for uh, the best feet. There's some pretty creative ways to wrap up feet and shove them inside of a hockey skate for four hours. That's nothing compared to what some of these people that we're meeting, you know, people that are going through cancer treatment, these young kids that have been doing it, and also seeing people that have come out of it. Wow, perspective is everything. Hey, the marathon has already raised more than half a million dollars to support childhood cancer research with about a couple of days yet to go.
Wow. wow. Incredible. A lot of ibuprofen and not yes. a lot of back checking. No. <laughs> I was going to say a pedicure will feel good, but actually I don't think it will. No. Not after that. <laughs> All right, Barry, what do you have coming up for us in sports? Well, a uh, super busy night uh, tonight downtown Vancouver. The Whitecaps are playing at BC Place. Canucks are taking on uh, the Sharks at Rogers. So we'll uh, tee up both of those games for you. Obviously, the Canucks in desperation mode one more time, but they've played well this past week. We'll see what happens. And a very cold and chilly, windy day at the Masters at Augusta. We'll check on how Tiger Woods did and uh, Corey Connors again in the hunt representing Canada. What a champ Tiger is throughout it all. All right, thanks for that, Barry. Looking forward to it. Also coming up tonight on the News Hour, the recent Indigenous Vatican visit from a distinctive vantage point. We hear from a BC Metis journalist on what it was like for her to report on reconciliation in Rome. BC-based Aboriginal People's Television Network, or APTN, journalist Tina House recently returned from Rome, where she covered historic meetings with Pope Francis in Vatican City for the largest Indigenous broadcaster in the world. I was also there for Global News, and between our reports, she took time to tell us about how she walks a fine line as an intergenerational survivor herself, trying to focus on the job and kicking down the door for other Indigenous journalists. Do you feel you're speaking on behalf of the 215 little voices that can no longer speak for themselves? APTN journalist Tina House interviewing to Kamloops to Schwetmik cookpea Roseanne Casimir in Rome. This represents the little moccasins here, the 215 uh, unmarked graves that were found in Kamloops. She traveled with the delegation to cover reconciliation meetings with Pope Francis with her own piercing perspective. Everyone here has been affected by residential schools one way or another. Including her. Tina's grandmother was forced into a residential school. Her mother went to a boarding school. In my career as a journalist now, I've literally probably interviewed hundreds of survivors. And it has affected me in a way that I literally feel like I'm paying a piece of my soul every time I I tell a story. Tina's now 15-year career got underway with a gruesome case. She intimately told the detailed story of her missing cousin, only revealing at the end it was her relative, in a half-hour special on missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, which won an Amnesty International Human Rights Award in 2010. All that work culminating in a watershed moment earlier this month. This is the very first time that our voices are being heard, the Métis. We have been so disenfranchised our whole lives because of our mixed race. A proud moment for her people, more than two decades after her late father hailed a national Métis hero, won this Aboriginal Achievement Award in 2001. And Tina adding to the House family hardware not long after her return to Canada. Tina One day to rest and boom, hit the ground, and now I win National Reporter for the Canadian Screen Awards. Dad, if you're here now, thank you. I miss you and I love you. Thank you. As the first Indigenous journalist to win that award, she's making history while also covering it. Congratulations, Tina. All right, Barry's back with the full sports cast after this break. And banking on the bus driver. How an Alberta man's transit trip that initially cost him way more than he bargained for ended in a heartwarming thanks.
support those living with ALS through Project Hope. Help the ALS Society of BC reach their goal of raising $20 million to establish a world-class ALS center at UBC. This project aims to bring hope for ALS patients and fulfill the dream of finding a cure. Don't miss the incredible opportunity to see Elton John on his final tour. On October 21st and 22nd, catch the iconic performer playing a spectacular stadium show at BC Place for his Farewell Yellow Brick Road Tour. For RBC, I'm Michael Newman. If you want to know, it's on the house. If you want to show, it's on the house. If you want to go, it's on the Global BC Community Hub. Navigate your now. All right, Barry's here for the full sports cast, and it seems like they've been on a good run, starting off with the Canucks. Yeah, they've been uh, good the last few games, but uh, that's just the start. They really uh, got to kind of run the table here for the next few weeks. Thanks, Nithu. The uh, Canucks are down to their final 10 games, and they might have to win every single one of them to get into the playoffs. The Canucks host the Sharks tonight. Coming off a couple of impressive wins on the road over uh, Vegas and Phoenix, the trick is to bring that game back home to Rogers Arena where Vancouver really is only a 500 hockey team. Seven of their last ten are at home, and they know they have no margin for error right now. Anything is possible. I mean, uh, it's, uh, you, you never, never give up, and you go as hard as you can for as long as you can, and that's where we're at. We're just going to keep pushing and pushing. Whoever's in the lineup or out of the lineup, it doesn't matter. Um, we're just going to go, and uh, we'll, we'll be a tough out for any team that plays us for the rest of the year. You know, our, our goal in that dressing room is to scratch and claw our way in, um, to be a part of it's big, um, just being around that group, trying to make it last and uh, push forward. The Canucks also need a lot of help, and they got some today in Dallas. Stars taking on the lowly Devils. Third period, one nothing Stars, but Ty Smith ties it with the wrister from the slot. It's 1-1. It looked like it would go to overtime, but with just over a minute to go, Nico Heischer nets his 20th of the year. Terrific individual effort, and the Devils do the Canucks a big favor, beating Dallas 3-1. So the Stars lead the Canucks by six points, but now with just one game in hand. Also tonight, Flames and Kraken from Seattle. Johnny Gaudreau a point away from 100. Flames get on the board just four minutes in. Blake Coleman in front is going to deflect the Noah Hannafin point shot. 14th of the year for Coleman. And the Flames on the board 1-0. Late first now 1-1. It's uh, Trevor Lewis on the doorstep. Flames getting some secondary scoring tonight, not depending on that Gaudreau line. 2-1 after one. Second period, Calgary power play, and it's the second unit that cashes in. Michael Stone, who's got a bomb, blows it past Philip Grubauer, and the Flames go on to win it 4-1. Also, Habs and Leafs, Austin Matthews leading the NHL with 56 goals. It did not take him long to get to 57. He will cash in on the rebound. That's his 50th goal in his last 50 games played this season, which is remarkable production in this day and age. one nothing Leafs, but he ain't done. Very next shift, Matthews down the left wing, fires home the wrister. That's 58. 60 is coming fast for Matthews. 2 nothing Leafs. And then in the second, now 2-1, it's the captain, John Tavares, spinning and firing. That's the game winner. Leafs take it 3-2 up to the 100-point mark in the standings, and they officially clinch a playoff spot. The Whitecaps take on longtime rivals Portland Timbers tonight at BC Place. It'll be the 100th all-time meeting between the two sides, going back to their USL days. It's always a great atmosphere, and the Caps are hoping that energy at BC Place will help propel them to a second straight home victory. 
No, no, no. We don't need extra motivation. They, they are a local rival. They are a team that at the moment is two points ahead of us. So if we win, we get in front of us, in front of them. Sorry. And also, these games against Porto are always beautiful because we have uh, traveling fans from them, and our fans are fired up because they want to show the other fans that they're good. So I think that uh, we don't need extra motivation. I think that the player will be up to the challenge. Blustery, cold day at Augusta, round three of the Masters. Tiger Woods began the day at one over, but had a miserable day on the greens at the fifth. Missed that one for a par, and then also misses the comebacker. So a three-putt for a double bogey, also had a four-putt. He did make a nice birdie, however, here at the 12th. That cold weather not helping Tiger's mobility today. Noticeably limp more. Shot a 78. He's at seven over, tied 41st, but the crowd is really loving him, and it's amazing to see Tiger competing again. But Scotty Scheffler, who led by five after round two, kept the pedal down. This is for birdie at the sixth. Scheffler into double digits now at 10 under par. Corey Connors, the Canadian, who's had a couple of top 10 finishes at the Masters, the past two Masters, one of the pure ball strikers on tour shows it off here at the ninth. That led to a birdie. And then after another fine approach at 10, knocks in the short birdie there to get to three under par. 14th hole. Connors again on one of the toughest holes on the course. You don't see a lot of birdies here, but he got one, a beautiful approach. Unfortunately, he had bogeys at 15 and 18, but he's tied for six that one under only seven players in the field are in red figures, so Corey playing very well. South African Charles Schwartzel, the 2011 champ, in the final group with Scotty Scheffler. How's this on the 10th? No putter required for Schwartzel. It's an eagle two, got to six under at one point, but that's uh, the last birdie he or eagle he would make on the day. Ozzy Cam Smith, who played alongside Connors, had the best round of the day, 468. That got him to six under par. Smith got to within three, but Scheffler responds. Beautiful short iron into the par five 13th. Led to another birdie, gets to minus 11. Scheffler uh, wobbled a bit, but righted the ship at 17. Another great approach shot here that led to a birdie. He did bogey 18 after driving it into a tree, but he's at nine under. His lead is three over second place Cam Smith. And as mentioned, Corey Connors, eight back at one under. Scheffler going for his first ever major championship Sunday at the Masters. Well, BC already has four full-time PGA Tour members, Adam Hadwin, Nick Taylor, Roger Sloan, and Adam Svensson. You might see another one soon. Coquitlam's A.J. Ewart has been ripping it up at uh, Barry University in Miami, Florida. I like the name of that place. It's the same school that Adam Svensson attended. Ewart is the number one ranked Division II golfer in the NCAA. He's won five tournaments already this year, but he's not in a rush to get that pro career started just yet. I came to school with the plan to, to finish my four years and get my degree, so that's what I'm going to do. So I have one more year after this year, and then once that year's over, then I'll sit down with my parents and my team and, and see what the best route for me to go is. And if that's turning pro right away, then that's what it is. But um, I am still haven't got that far. I'm kind of just focused on now and, and college and amateur golf and Team Canada, obviously. So that's, that's where it is right now, and maybe in the future that will change. The best score that you've carded this year, and tell everybody at home your career low round. Uh, this year I shot a 62 at our home course, and I believe it was last fall I shot a 59 in qualifying. 
59 any times. Pretty darn good. Blue Jays and Texas Rangers. Toronto overcame a 7-0 deficit last night to win their season opener 10-8. Today, Kevin Gossman, one of their new hot shot starters, made his debut. Strikes out former Jay Marcus Simeon. Gossman struck out five, gave up three runs over five innings. Jays needed another comeback, not nearly as big a one. Bo Bichette crushes his first homer of the year to tie it up 3-3. And then in the sixth, Santiago Espinal brought in to pinch hit for Kevin Biggio, and he comes through with this RBI double into the gap in left center, scores another Blue Jay newcomer, Raymel Tapia. He is safe at the plate, and the Blue Jays go to 2-0 in the young season as they beat the Texas Rangers 4-3 today in Toronto. And last night at BC Place, Canada's women's national team celebrating that Olympic gold and paying tribute to the great Christine Sinclair for being the all-time leading scorer on the planet. Canada taking on Nigeria just to stay sharp, put on a show for the fans. Jesse Fleming got Canada on the board in the second half. And then they'll add one more off the set piece. Vanessa Gilles will head it in. 2-0 the final. Canada wins. And the same two teams play on the island in Langford on Monday. So go out and support our gold medalists if you can. Nithu, that's it for sports. All right. Thanks very much, Barry. And we'll be right back with a Calgary Transit rider who got his money's worth after a bus ride gone wrong. Stay with us. All right. This is quite relatable. We've all had that sinking feeling when you've realized you've lost an item you count on, like your wallet. Fortunately, a recent case in Calgary had the best outcome. A passenger was on his way to the bank on Wednesday when at one point he had to pull out his wallet when he boarded the transit bus. But when he got to the bank, he realized he no longer had his wallet. He retraced his steps, but no luck. He reported it to Calgary Transit, but didn't expect to get his money back. Then he got the call. He came along and said, they, guess what I found? <laughs> I said, my wallet. <laughs> yeah, they said they did. And all your money and everything's in it. Mm. I thought, oh, thank the Lord. Mm. The driver says another passenger pointed it out to him on the seat and he made sure it was turned in to lost and found. You know, a few times a year we do those wallet return stories. There's still hope for us humans. Yes. Yeah, it's nice hope. to know there's good people. Exactly. <laughs> and good weather too? Yeah, uh, we are going to see some bright spots tomorrow, maybe a few isolated showers, but uh, both Sunday, Monday, the nicest days out of the bunch. Don't look ahead towards Tuesday yet. It could still change. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're a week ahead. Thanks so much for sharing some of your Saturday with us. Krista Dow will be here at 11. Bye, everyone. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.